Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. May I welcome you to University College London and to tonight's inaugural lecture, which is one of a series being given jointly between arts and humanities and social and historical sciences. And um, my task is a simple one this evening, apart from welcoming you, it is uh, to be the warm-up act for the warm-up act <laughs> before the speaker. And the speaker this evening is Claire Warwick, who has taken a rather controversial title uh, for her inaugural lecture, to which the simple answer is given by the number of people here. Um, and I hope it will be not... not um, her argument will not just be, yes, that's it, folks. Um, but if it is, then we shall invite Ray Siemens to uh, give a vote of thanks uh, for the shortest inaugural lecture in the history of University College London. And then we shall adjourn across the uh, road, taking uh, our lives into our hands, using the Pelican Crossing, though, I hope, to go to the Grant Museum, uh, which is not the museum in honour of our esteemed provost and president. Um, well, not yet, anyway. Um, uh, across um, Tottenham Court Road, no, Gower Street is what, the one I mean, and slightly south, where there will be drinks. Um, and um, I hope as many of you um, as possible will come there. Uh, inaugural lectures are for everyone apart from the giver of the inaugural lecture, um, terrifically good events um, that people look forward to. And they give the uh, inaugural speaker, who has recently been uh, usually uh, promoted to a chair, a chance to talk about his or her research, not at a highly technical level, but uh, to a mixed audience of people who are experts in the subject and people who are not experts in the subject. But they are above all, I hope and think, very happy occasions because we are celebrating people's personal triumphs and the research that they do and the way that they work with other people, not just in their departments but in the university as a whole, and with the global group of scholars who work in the same sort of area. So uh, that's enough from me. Um, I'd like to introduce um, Melissa Tellis, who's going to say a few words about Claire, and then Claire will speak. Hi, everyone. I'm a close colleague of Claire's. I work with her in the Department of Information Studies at UCL Centre for Digital Humanities, and it's a great pleasure to introduce her, her today because this is a celebration of her achievements and a celebration of her career. And it is my job, quickly, to run through some of the things that Claire has done over the past 15, 20 years of being an academic. Claire started her university career at Selwyn College, Cambridge, where she undertook a BA in English Literature. You will note I'm not seeing any dates here. <laughs> um, she then undertook an MPhil in English Renaissance Literature before completing her PhD in English Literature there. After a brief period of teaching English at girls' school, she then joined Chadwick Healy, the electronic publishers, where she worked in the editorial department, marking up documents in SGML, before moving to an editorial role there. In 1996, she joined the University of Oxford in her first academic role. This was a joint post between the Faculty of English and the Humanities Computing Unit. And her job there was to support the use of digital resources in the humanities and to provide support for users of the British National Corpus. She then joined the University of Sheffield in 1998, where she was a lecturer in electronic publishing. She ran a new module on electronic publishing and helped to design the new MA in web journalism. 
She joined UCL in 2002 as a lecturer in electronic communication and publishing, progressing to senior lecturer in 2006 and reader in 2009. In 2008 and 2009, she was also instrumental in set setting up DH at UCL, the UCL Centre for Digital Humanities, bringing together the different strands of interest in digital humanities across UCL and putting them together in a central resource that we can use to foster development of digital resources in the humanities across campus and really to set a fire under us to start doing good research. 2009 was a busy year for Claire because not only was she director of UCL Centre for Digital Humanities and promoter to reader, she was also promoted to Vice Dean of Research in the UCL Faculty of Arts and Humanities. So she is really central to the Arts and Humanities research role and their use of promoting digital media across UCL. In 2011, Claire became head of department of information studies. And in 2011, there's also lots of noise coming from over there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> she is, has now been promoted to professor. Claire's research spans a wide variety of things in digital humanities, but mostly users and looking at use and users of digital resources, particularly for the humanities, but also the arts and cultural and heritage sectors. Some of the projects she's worked on include log analysis of internet resources in the arts and humanities, the virtual environments for research and archaeology, where we went out into trenches and looked at how people could use Wi-Fi and handheld devices in the trench for archaeological digs. Inc, implementing new knowledge environments, looking at e-readers and how the use of reading is changed and mediated through um, electronic devices. And a project called Curator, which stands for QR codes, artifacts, tales, objects and representations. Now, look out for Curator when you're in the Grant Museum later, because what we did there is we took QR codes into the museum and we put iPads everywhere people can interact with objects. And Claire has been PI on this project setting up there, so that's why we're going to the Grant Museum later. She has a considerable expertise in user studies and digital resources and has also served various key roles in professional societies in the digital humanities. Aside from this, she has, finds the time to be a keen horsewoman and she's also a very talented musician. I was thinking, well, when the first time I met Claire actually was, we've worked together very closely over the past decade on stuff, um, and I got as far back as 2000. I think that's the first time we actually had a conversation. And when that was, was it was on the bus coming back from a curry at a conference at ALLC ACH 2000, the catchy title for a conference, and we got on the bus, ended up sitting back next to each other, going back to the halls. And we'd had a few beers by then. Uh, we decided it'd be really funny to set up a thing for women in computing in the humanities. And we thought this was hilarious. We'd had a few beers. And so it was something about women and computing in the humanities. So of course we came up with the title women and technology computing in the humanities, which, wouldn't that be hilarious? Um, and we kind of got off the bus giggling, <laughs> and we said to someone else in our field who happened to be a quite senior woman, wouldn't that be really funny? We could like, which women and technology computing in the humanities? And she slapped us right down. And she said, if you're going to ghettoise yourself now, you will get nowhere in your academics careers. And we stood there like this one. Sorry. <laughs> Since then, it's only 11 and a half years later that Claire has, has gone from being a junior lecturer at Sheffield to professor and head of department, top of her game in the discipline, in 11 and a half years. And in that time, she has not ghettoised women. She has been someone who has been really proactive in promoting, been open, 
communicating to people and being a very, very supportive person. And it is with absolute delight, people, that I give you today, Professor Claire Warwick. Thank you very much. Good evening. Um, it's brilliant to see so many people here. Um, yes, in a sense, the title's a bit of a contradiction in terms, but um, bear with me. Okay, so I first should say thank you very much to Melissa for her fantastic introduction, which was great, um, and to Henry for being the warm-up to the warm-up. Um, and also, I'm not going to do the Oscar speech, honestly, but um, the one thing I should say as I start is to explain our beautifully designed slides, um, done by one of our extremely talented um, PhD students, Rudolf Ammann, who's sitting down at the front. Now, I had... Another design he did for me for a public lecture I did on Twitter. Actually, I should turn this on, shouldn't I? Um, and, oh, that's better. Um, and Rudolf did a very fine little tweeting bird tweeting the UCLDH uh, logo. Um, we thought that since this is now after dark, the birds would have gone to sleep. So it's an owl tweeting about UCLDH. But anyway, um, just to explain that and to thank Rudolf very much for doing these slides. Um, if you'd like to tweet, by the way, the hashtag is uh, UCLDH, uh, which is our usual hashtag. You can follow many things that we do on that. Okay, so um, I'm not actually going to talk about users. Um, anybody who knows me knows, as Melissa has said, that I do an awful lot of stuff about users of digital resources and humanities. And you are probably bored witness of hearing it by now. So I'm not going to talk about that. Um, if you happen to not have come across some of this, um, you probably don't want to, but should you be tempted, uh, you can always go and have a look at the stuff in UCL Discovery. Um, I'm basically just in the spirit of Tweet Your Thesis, which is our, one of our latest internet memes. Um, oh, it's still doing it. Um, I think I'll just quickly summarise, basically, the message of most of my research is, if you build it, they won't come unless you do user studies. Thank you very much. Let's move on. Um, right, so what am I going to talk about? Um, in a sense, I am going to talk about users in a funny kind of way, because I'm going to talk about um, how do we think about whether a resource is fit for the kind of things we want to do with it, the kind of uses that we want to put it to. Um, so I started thinking about the whole idea of inaugural lectures, and um, I thought, well, um, how, do we, how do we think about phenomena? How do we think about things, whether they're digital or physical things? And it came to me that a useful concept to use might be this of the affordance. Um, it's been used very effectively by our colleague Stan Rooker, who is a member of the Inc. project that Melissa um, talked about earlier. And Stan's talked about the idea that basically you can think about a digital resource that isn't yet built by thinking about what you might want it to do, what it might be useful for, and thinking about what users will need to do with it, uh, and then designing with that in mind. So I'm going to have a look tonight at the affordances of the inaugural lecture and compare it, as Stan would do, to the affordances of something that doesn't yet exist. In other words, what might be the digital equivalent to an inaugural lecture. Just to sum up my understanding of what an affordance is, it's actually a very complicated concept, and Stan and um, Milena, Milena and uh, Stefan Sinker have um, written a very interesting discussion about this in their latest book. But basically, an affordance is, as I say, a property of, of something, uh, something that it will do, something that the, we are aware it's good for, something, some, a use that it, we are aware it can be put to. Um, and what we think about something's affordances will, dis will depend on whether, you know, what, 
in effect, it is in the, the eye of the beholder. So my view of the affordance of the uh, inaugural lecture may not necessarily be everybody's. Uh, that happens often, you know. Um, basically, therefore, Stan explains the, the idea of an affordance is if it's raining, you probably want to have an umbrella rather than a wrench as your tool. A wrench is a very useful tool in many situations, but not if you want to keep yourself dry. On the other hand, whether you actually use an umbrella will depend on how much you mind getting wet, whether you're wearing a new outfit, such as me, um, whether you, you know, sometimes actually people enjoy getting wet. So the, this is the idea. What do we want to do with something? What is it good for? Um, tools in themselves are good for many things, but you only really find out what they're useful for when you think about them in, in the context of what they're used for. Um, and this is another kind of context in which I'm going to work methodologically. That is that... Um, a lot of my work has been very heavily influenced by um, Anne Blanford, and, and she's here today somewhere. Um, and Anne has, Anne has um, done a very great deal of work on the concept of use in context. In other words, um, we only really understand what digital resources are good for when we think about, or indeed other things are good for, when we think about them in the use that they're really good. So it's all very well having people in a, in a lab studying usability, but people don't generally use resources in a lab. They use them in real conditions. So hence, as Melissa was saying, we went out um, to an archaeological dig and paddled around in mud and things to find out whether IT kit could actually cope with being dropped down wells. Um, the answer is mostly it can't. Um, but seriously, so this is so I'm using I'm also using a frame of use in context for this lecture. So in other words. Is the inaugural lecture fit for the use that I think it might be put to? Um, and again, that is to some extent, that's thinking about me as a user, but it's also thinking about audiences as users as various different types of academics as users. Okay, that's enough of the context. Um, so, I went and did a little research on the whole thing about inaugural lectures, and I asked some people what they were for, and I read some websites. Um, and I've come out with some suggested affordances, which I'm going to use as the frame for what I'm going to talk about. So, uh, communication research, in other words, I am going to tell you about what I do. Um, how interactive are they? In other words, is it just a one-to-many broadcast, or is there opportunity for people to take part? Um, is it an ordeal? Um, is there some element, could there be some element of it is to do with paying back to your community for what you have been given? Uh, is there an opportunity for public engagement? Um, how useful are these things when it comes to wanting to include people and say thank you to your team? Um, and then the questions of it's about celebrating and the whole business of the tedious business that we've all got to force ourselves to go to a party afterwards. Um, so, um, here are some typical DH researchers. They are some typical DH researchers from, from UCL, largely, although there are some non-UCL people here. Um, so what is it about digital research that I feel is not well communicated by an inaugural lecture? Well, um, you can see what this is. They are in, they are, there's lots of people there, and they're all talking to each other, and they're interacting. Now, um, the problem, thing about DH is it is an almost necessarily collaborative discipline. People work in teams. In a sense, what we do in DH is about interpreting between different cultures. You can see they're busily interpreting there with the aid of a beer. And um, therefore, what we, you can't interpret in a vacuum. You have to have at least two different people in the conversation. Um, so just 
somebody, one person speaking, isn't very digital humanities as far as I'm concerned. I think to do really good digital humanities, you've got to have a conversation, you've got to have a dialogue, you've got to have a collaboration. Um, and it's possibly not surprising, therefore, that there are so many excellent female digital humanities, humanities scholars. You know, if you are looking for female geeks, this is a good place to find them. And that may be because of this question of interpretation of conversation, because after all, girls tend to be socialised to make connections, to set up groups and communities, rather than to sort of set themselves up as the authority figure. So I think that there may be something about DH which is particularly well suited to female researchers, although obviously that's controversial, but hey, it's my, it's my lecture and I'm going to be controversial if I want to. Um, the other thing is that user voices need to be heard in digital humanities as well. I am uncomfortable with the idea, increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of me speaking to other people and then not being able to communicate to me because the more, more I work on this area, and I'm going to talk about some of these things due course, uh, the more I'm working with people all the time, and I'm working with the people that use resources. It's not me telling them what they should do, it's them talking to me about what they would like to do, and then us seeing what we can make happen. So, um, as I say, digital humanities is very team-based, conversational, collaborative, and I find it therefore odd to be a single voice speaking. Um, then, of course, there are problems with physical lectures. It's not just the fact that, as a lecturer, you really don't want to see this. Um, it's, it's also the problem of, it's this, it's what I'm seeing here. It's that it's totally non-interactive. So, I am talking to you. There aren't even any questions tonight, but if, even if there were, you would have to wait till the end of the lecture to ask, very likely. Um, we can't interact properly. Um, you can't, you know, you have to be here at a certain time. I had to invite you. Um, you can't actually just wander off. I mean, you could if you wanted, and I won't mind, but, you know, it generally isn't, isn't terribly, you know, it's not thought of very well. And then, of course, there is the problem that is illustrated by the, um, by the graphic in front of us. Um, so, you know, we are tied to a place, we're tied to a certain time, we're tied to, um, we all have to be here. And several people have emailed me today to say they're really sorry, but they've got a problem with childcare, or they're not feeling well, or um, they're meant to be able to come, but some other an emergency has happened. And that means they can't be here. You know, I know this is terribly obvious, but it's, it is a serious limitation. It means that there's something, you know, that is stopping them being, being with us and, and being across the lecture. Um, also, I think that there is, you know, this time slot is not great. It's, guess which one's the professor there? Um, you know, this is the thing. 6.30 is not a terrifically good time for people with small children. I know there are some, many people here with small children, and I really am grateful to you for coming, but several people couldn't because they've got to deal with childcare. And I think having a sort of idea of having the person standing up, speaking at a certain time in the early evening, harks back to a much older model of what being a professor was. It was probably being male. It was probably having the wife at home who cooked for you and looked after the children and made sure that when you came home after attending various people's inaugural lectures, you didn't have to start doing the cooking. And you didn't have to deal with the childcare. And I mean, okay, I'm being a bit cliched here, you might think, but 
virtually you know every study that comes out shows that it is still women who do the vast amount of childcare and housework, and it is still women that do, as it were, the double shift. So I think you know we have to be aware that this is not necessarily terribly family friendly. Um, and I think it does also, you know, there is the question of people with long commutes. Um, again, there's been some studies that suggest that female academics tend to have longer commutes than male academics because, um, because often men won't move. You know, <laughs> seriously, women have to move to suit men's careers, not the other way around. And again, that sounds horrible and old fashioned and cliche, but it's actually true. And study after study shows that. Um, so, you know, I do wonder whether we should really be harking back to this model. Um, there is also, so, okay, we've talked about what isn't great about physical presence and requiring people to be here. Now let's think about the digital alternative. Um, as I've said, digital humanities is a very collaborative world. We talk to each other a lot. Um, but we talk to each other a lot on digital media. And I hope that everybody's doing it now. I hope that people are tweeting away happily. Um, I can remind people, I do see quite a lot of the geeks there with their iPhones, which is terrific, um, and normal. Um, and you can see that um, this is some of the top tweeters from DH uh, 2011. Um, I'm up there somewhere. Um, there, yes. Um, and what you can see is that we do tend to um, talk, as it were. We collaborate, we think about what's going on in the presentations. You. Uh, it used to be said that when you were giving a paper at a conference, um, if people stopped typing, you were pleased because they'd stopped sending email. Um, now, if they've stopped typing, you worry because they've stopped tweeting. So, you know, this is the point. We, we like to respond to things. And I think that digital resources and the ability to have kind of digital responses, at least, to, um, to lectures are very much more flexible um, because we can have a genuine dialogue. There can be people... Um, if, let's say, I put the text of this on my blog, and I will do, um, you could send me comments. You could make comments on my blog. There doesn't have to be a particular type of time and space for that. You could comment on the blog as long as the blog was up there and findable. Um, you could... There can be a genuine dialogue. So, again, as, it, as with the... You could, you know, it would seem odd to wander out from here although I don't mind, um, you could, at the same time, it might seem a little odd if you all started to say, well, that was a really interesting point. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's rubbish myself, but, you know, what do you think? And uh, that would seem strange. But you can do that with digital resources, you know, and you often do find it. You see comments on people's blogs, the commenters talking to each other, not just the blogger. You see people talking to each other and responding to each other on Twitter. Um, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be this sense of the monologic, I am the person speaking and you've all got to listen. Um, there is, it's a much more inclusive, interactive medium. Um, you can stop and start, so you can, you know, get through, halfway through reading a blog, go away, do something else, come back, think about it, comment on it, or think about not commenting on it. Um, equally, um, you don't actually have to invite people. You know, if I'm... It's one of the reasons I prefer Twitter to, to, and blogging to Facebook. I don't like knowing who's listening in many ways. I like the anonymity of just doing, putting stuff out there, whether it's my blog or whether it's on Twitter. And I don't have to invite people. If you want to follow me, you follow me. If you don't, you don't. If you want to comment, you can comment. You know, I rather like that idea that, you know, I had to invite you here. And it's lovely that you'll come, 
But I don't know who's, who's out there reading my blog, and I don't you know, necessarily always know who reads my tweet, and I rather like that. I rather like that idea that we, we put our thoughts out there and you know, we see if they get heard or not. Um, and you know, that's fascinating, and it's, it, it, it's interesting, and there's a rather kind of liberating sense of that. And um, you know, it's a great deal less scary than talking to quite such a distinguished crowd, I must say. So um, I, I think really that as far as the idea of representing the discipline of digital humanities and thinking about interactivity and flexibility, I really do think that digital resources score quite heavily over the traditional lecture. But as I just mentioned, there is the issue of scaring people. So um, one of the things that I gathered when I talked to people about why do we have to do inaugural lectures was the idea of it's the membership of the club, it's the price you pay. To some extent, it is an ordeal. It is like a medieval ordeal. You have to prove you're tough enough to stand up here and talk to this scary crowd, and they don't start moving and throwing stuff at you. Um, and I thought, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, and it you know, okay, so if I actually have to talk about the affordance of an inaugural lecture in those terms, it works. You know, it wins hands down. I cannot imagine the possibility of there being a digital alternative that could be even slightly as terrifying. Um, I mean, you would have to be the technophobe to end all technophobes to find that terrifying. But, so, okay, it totally wins hands down. There's no point even thinking about the affordance of the digital to do that kind of stuff. However, I would like to propose a quicker, easier, and more efficient way of frightening the wits out to people. <laughs> so um, I'm thinking, rather than having to invite people and give them drinks and all that kind of stuff just to frighten me, um, you could find out what people's phobias are. And when they apply to be a professor, you could just say, OK, what is it you most fear? So you know, here is a picture of Claire Ross on the roof uh, when, we, when we did the, uh, the launch. Now, Claire Ross and I had a lovely time running about on the roof. But suppose you were from under heights. That would work for you. So, you know, you could go up there with the dean of your faculty, or the dean of your faculty is also frightened if it's somebody else, and they could take a picture of you like this to prove that you'd been up there. And, you know, if you weren't frightened of heights, I'm sure we could find something. You know, I'm claustrophobic, so you could shut me in a cupboard for a few days. Um, you know, uh, you could, if you're an arachnophobia against the Grant Museum, I'm sure there's some nasty tarantulas in there. You know, so I think there are much quicker and more effective ways of scaring the wits out of new professors so we can, we can show that we're really tough. Is that really what we're meaning to do with this? Well, anyway, I leave that um, question unanswered. Um, but there is a more serious aspect to this. This question of the idea of paying something back. Yeah, I can tell you we're reading this. Um, I thought we'd have a few words for the texty types out there. Um, there is a quite serious idea that you know the ordeal is something to do. I think there is a sort of implied meaning behind it that says perhaps it's about um, perhaps it's about some kind of paying back to the community. It's not necessarily showing you tough, it's showing that you, you recognise you need to pay something back. And I think that is actually a serious point. You know, to get me here, many people have you know given me a great deal of help. My institutions have given me a great deal of help. Um, but there is a need to pay back actually and there is a need to pay back because you can see that you know there is an image problem with the professors. These are some quotations from a recent article we may have read in the THE about professors and um, what most people think about them. And it's not good, as you can see. Um, the, the idea being that, that you know, 
therefore we do we do have this this image problem and in a sense i think the inaugural lecture is a bad way to start given that you know if you want to prove that you are not a personal glory seeker is this a good way to actually launch your career as a professor i'm not convinced it is um so i think we do have to take cognizance of this and again it, it comes back to the sort of old model professors standing up there telling you what to think and all that kind of stuff um, and there clearly is quite a lot of feeling in, in the rest of the world um, that people who are professors ought to do more than that, that we ought to have a role in academic leadership, that we ought to have a role in nurturing the careers of um, more junior members of staff. And I think that's serious, and I think that's very important. And so um, I'm not actually going to propose a digital alternative to this, but I'm going to say that it's something we ought to take seriously, and it's something, as I say, the inaugural lecture doesn't necessarily play well into. And maybe we should think of, okay, you know, when you're a new professor, maybe part of the paying back is thinking that, should all new professors have to undertake mentoring of a new member of staff or something like that? You know, should we have to do that? I've done, you know, somebody here that I mentored for a year, um, right there, and um, it was great and I really enjoyed it and I would recommend it to anyone. So, you know, maybe that's something we ought to think about, that there is a serious way of paying back, not just by frightening people. Um, one of the things that we might do then, if we thought about how are there better ways that we could communicate um, people's research digitally, and not necessarily just in digital communities? Um, I think there are. I mean, there's a very interesting thing that the Effective Engineering has done, um, which is putting up... This is actually web pages put up by the faculty about newly promoted academics, where... Um, there's a sort of brief interview, um, and Tim Vayush up there is one of the people interviewed. Sorry, Tim, I didn't get the, I didn't clip with your head on it. Um, and I think this is great, but one thing we could think about doing might be perhaps to say, okay, um, maybe all newly promoted professors blog about themselves or their work if they don't want to blog about themselves. Um, you know, maybe what we do is have blogs that allow people to tell you about their work, but also, um, in a much more flexible way, can. You can make links to almost anything from a blog. So people who work on buildings or on um, art or on time-based media can link to various different types of things. And are very hard. It's hard to get a building in the Gustav Tuck um, if you want to talk about it in your inaugural. Um, but you could make all sorts of links. You could make links to UCL Discovery. So, I mean, I like to think that you're busily on your iPads going, oh my goodness, I must not look up Claire's publications on such and such. This is so interesting. But I bet you not. And I bet you might even think about it doing it when, when you go home. If you still think about doing it when you go home or if you've been to the party, then I'd be quite surprised. Um, but from blogs, you can actually make these kind of links easily. And we could, you, know, you could move from somebody's blog to their actual work, to downloading things, to visiting things, to links to members of the team, to all that kind of thing. Um, and it's actually, I think, in terms of user aspects of what we're doing, it's, it's actually better suited to the way that we really work now. I mean, if I want to find out about colleagues' research, I don't wait to go to a lecture. I Google them. I find out if they blog. I follow them on Twitter. I don't wait to hear what they've got to say. You know, this would work much better in the sort of sense of what we really do. Um, there's a very interesting way of doing this in digital humanities, um, which we've been doing for the last couple of years, called the Day of DH, which is a linked blogging. Um, effort and I've seen I can see various people here have been part of Day of DH and the idea is that we all blog on a particular day about what we're doing so give a, the, the world an idea of what DH is about and so this is another great way of communicating our research in digital humanities 
collaboratively, but where the whole community can connect itself up, because the idea is you read other people's blogs and you comment on them and you write about them and you tweet them. And it's a really, really excellent way of the digital humanities community sharing what it does. Um, but it, it doesn't only work for digital humanities. So you may think, oh, well, this would only work for these kind of geeky types. But actually, no. Um, one of our PhD students in the department has done uh, a really interesting version of this for archaeology, where archaeologists have blogged and tweeted a day about what they've been doing. And, you know, she's doing fascinating research about public archaeology. So I think if it works for archaeology, I can't see why it shouldn't work for other bits of UCL. So perhaps we should have a day of UCL research. And that, you know, you could have professorial blogs, but you could also just have a day of UCL research. And that could be everybody blogging about what they do. It doesn't have to be just professors, it could be anyone. It could be early career scholars, it could be postdocs, it could be PhD students. And arguably, they need this, the exposure much more than we do. You know, you all know what I do my research about. But I've got some fascinating PhD students, and I know some really interesting early career scholars doing some fascinating work. We don't find out about their work until they get a chair. Well, you know, surely it's them we really need to know about, not me. So I think, you know, I think there would be other really quite interesting ways to, to connect and to communicate the UCL research, both to the community internally and also to the external community, because, of course, this is, this is public as well as internal to UCL. Um, so public engagement is another important um, aspect of the inaugural lecture. Uh, and this is just our um, UCL definition of public engagement for those of you who don't do quite as much public engagement as we do at UCL. Um, I think it's important to notice, though, that public engagement is defined as being a two-way process. So um, if Steve Cross were here, which he isn't because he's doing public engagement, um, he's the head of UCL public engagement, he would say that what I'm actually doing is, is, is communication of research. It's public communication. It is not actually engagement at all. So I don't think we can, I think we can say this, this may be communication, but it's not actually really engaging, again, with the audience. Um, however, you can see that, again, um, digital public engagement is doing rather well, actually. This, these are the user stats for um, CASA's Global Lab pod podcast. Now, again, you could actually say, in fact, Global Lab may, in fact, be more to do with public communication of research rather than actual engagement, although I don't know, and the, the Global Lab guys may be able to tell us afterwards, um, whether they also have tweets and blogs and things like that that actually do allow the people that listen to the podcast to interact with the people who make them. But you can see that actually from these, um, and it's quite a new, you know, as you can see, it only started in, in July, but you can see that um, downloads of these are growing quite impressively. So, I, you know, I think we need to think about there are all sorts of exciting ways to do public engagement or, indeed, if we want to call it public communication, digitally. And it may be, you know, it has, again, podcasts have all the flexibility of a way of getting the message out that don't require people having to be physically in a certain space. And I do actually recommend the, um, the Global Lab po podcast. They are fantastic. I mean, um, Steve and Martin are kind of like the... Um, the, the sort of Smith and Jones do no jour. So, you know, do, do listen to them. And, and our very own Claire Ross is part of that too. So, um, you know, it's very, it's very worthwhile. Um, so, 
Not surprisingly, we've really taken to doing public engagement in digital humanities. And I think there are some brilliant ways to do public engagement digitally. Now, there are some brilliant ways to do physical public engagement as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an, another part of what we've been doing in DIS and in digital humanities is doing things like Bright Club and writing workshops and pop-up exhibitions and all sorts of sort of physical public engagement. So that's terrific. It's just that I don't think the inaugural lecture is that. Um, however, some of the things we've been doing um, in UCLDH are very much public engagement and they are very much flexible and with the ability for, for users and the public and people outside um, the you know, academia to take part. So what you can see here, I don't know if you can actually, how, how well you can read it, you probably can't read it. This is a conversation about platypuses um, and spiders. Um, and this is on the iPads in the Grant Museum. So as I say, and as Melissa said, please do go and use the, use the iPads. And you know, this has actually worked really well. Um, it has proved to be a fascinating way for visitors to the Grant Museum to interact with the questions that have been posed by the, by the curators. So the curators are actually asking them, um, there's something about, is a platypus, is there, some, is there such a thing as a platypus or something really weird, which is the question about this. And people are responding to this question and they really are responding to the question. And um, they talk about the museum as well. They talk about what they think about the museum, but they talk about you know, what they think about the exhibits and they reply to each other. So they're interacting with each other, they're interacting with the curators, they're interacting with the museum. So effective has this been that um, the Imperial War Museum is now collaborating with us um, on a project to try and get digital interpretation in all of its galleries, in all of its museums, in a very short time, a frighteningly short time actually, um, but, you know, they, they really get it. The idea of using social media to allow museum visitors to, to take part, as it were, in the conversation. Nobody's ever done this before. Nobody thought it could be done. People thought that everybody would just, you know, leave silly messages and spam. Actually, they don't. There is some spam, but a remarkably small amount. And so this, you know, this changes forever, the idea that the museum professional talks to you and tells you what something is. Just as I'm talking to you and telling you what my inaugural lecture is, people thought it could never be changed in museums. It can, and you can do it digitally. So, you know, I think this is wonderfully inspiring, really. Another, you know, fantastic way of public engage, engagement digit, in digital fashion is the wonderful Transcribe Bentham project. Um, this is one of M Melissa's big projects, and it's been wonderfully um, successful. It actually shows that you can ask people to do really quite difficult things in a crowdsourcing way. People said, oh, yes, 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 well, Galaxy Zoo, yeah, you can ask people to tell you whether a planet's blue or green or whatever, but you can't expect them to do something really complicated. They'd never bother. Transcribe Bentham shows that that's absolutely not true. You know, you can actually ask people to transcribe a whole document that's in 19th century handwriting that might be quite difficult to read um, and to send it back, and um, that allows the, you know, the, the transcription of various of Bentham's writings to be crowdsourced. There are thousands of people who've taken part in this. They've done, you know, some people have done thousands of documents. I mean, not all of them, obviously, but, you know, it's, it's brilliant. It shows that, that, you know, the people out there want to interact with their heritage. It shows that people want to have access to the kind of things that normally only archivists or academics would have had. This gives anybody in the world access to them with the ability to, to talk to each other, to talk to, to interact with the, with, with, with the Transcribe Bentham team. It's incredibly inspiring. And it opens up Bentham studies in a way that would never have been possible, I think, 
any other way than digitally. So I think this, this really does show the power of digital public engagement. The downside of this, or the, I don't think it's a downside, but you know, obviously there are critics. And some people will say, it's dumbing down. You know, what's the point of doing this? People can't understand it properly. They're not academics. They don't have the research background. Um, they're not sufficiently expert. It won't be meaningful. Um, what are we doing? This isn't proper scholarship. It's not really, you know, it's not done kind of thing. And we've had that response. I would say to that, what kind of an expert am I if I don't think that I should have a dialogue with anybody about my work? If I can't defend what I do to anyone at all, then what, in what lies my expertise? You know, so I say we need to get out there and do that, not just talk within our own communities and believe that if you can communicate only with three members <coughs> of your discipline, that makes you really clever. Not in my book, it doesn't. So, I think public engagement, again, I would argue public engagement is much, much better done. Well, it's much, much better done digitally than the inaugural lecture. I wouldn't say it's better done digitally than many forms of physical public engagement are terrific, but I wouldn't count inaugural lectures in those. So we come um, to the idea of including the team. Now, this is a visualisation of all the people with whom I have co-authored papers. Now, obviously, there are many, many other people whose advice I have sought, who have been incredibly supportive to me, who have been students of mine, who I've had discussions <coughs> with, who, whose names don't actually appear on the papers, but they are, you know, they have been inspirational for me. But this just shows you quite how many people, you can't see all the names, unfortunately, but this shows you how many people I have written with. And as I said, DH is a team field. It's a collaborative discipline. Um, but we can't celebrate the team using this medium. I can't, they're all down here, but they're not up here, if you see what I mean. And I find this enormously frustrating because this, you know, it, it, this is the visualization of what I do in my research, not me standing here. And it's interesting that we were at um, DH 2011 and having sort of tweeted back channel conversation about there's a very distinguished speaker, Chad Gaffield, who was being given an award uh, for his research in digital humanities. And Verisys was saying, we well, you know it's funny, he's talking mostly about what his team's done. Why isn't there an award for team research in digital humanities? You know, almost everybody who's a digital humanist these days has a, has a great team. Why don't we have a prize for the team, not just for the individual who leads the team? We couldn't quite think about how that would be done, however. <laughs> you know, we still need a bit of kind of ingenuity about exactly how that would happen. But, but it's interesting, it's beginning to occur to us, you know, why do we give a prize to an individual when he himself was saying, this is about my team? So, you know, it, it pulls against what I consider to be the nature of my research and the nature of the way I work. So, um, it's not just me that does this. Um, by all accounts, again, in one of the, the most recent uh, Athena Swan reports, so the Asset Survey 2010, it suggests that women still tend to want to um, ascribe their success to the support of their, their team and their supporters and their, their partner and their family, and that men more often ascribe it to personal ability. Now, not all men, clearly. Um, and this is, you know, clearly if you're a really successful man, actually what you do is you praise your team. 
And this is what I feel about it. You know, okay, I'm the one wearing the equivalent of the world champion's jersey, but you guys put me here. You know, I could not have done it without all of you. Um, you know, that, that work here, but my, my more extended colleagues in digital humanities and my husband, who puts up with more, much more than he should, um, dealing with all this kind of, um, well, dealing with me yapping on about having to give an inaugural lecture on the last time for many months, <laughs> um, but, you know, what I'm trying to say here is that, of course it is right to praise the teams. Of course it is right to praise the people who get us there. If it's good enough for Mark Cavendish, it's good enough for me, quite frankly. And I think we should be doing more of that. You know, I think we should be, in my discipline, certainly, I think we should be, have a way of really being at foreground what the team does. And that is partly why I wanted to have the reception in the Bright Museum, so that you can see some of the things that the team does. In other words, some of the curator work. But I can only show you a tiny bit. No, it's not very much, really. So we move on to the whole question of celebration. You know, is it fit for purpose as a celebration? Well, um, I'm hoping that, my, that Stefan is, is working out where this title comes from, because this, this kind of uh, um, refers to a title of a paper that Stefan wrote called, um, well, and I wrote, uh, called In Information for Inspiration. And the idea, in fact, turns out to be that um, another of the project that Stefan's been working on with Anne Vanford and various other people, uh, it's another big collaborative project, um, is about the idea of serendipity and how do we discover things by accident. Now, it turns out, oddly enough, that one of the very good ways of people discovering things by accident is not necessarily computer supported at all. It's actually in the bar at conferences, or you know, sitting having coffee, or you know, having informal encounters where you just find out that you happen to be interested in something. And it's really hard to model that computationally, interestingly enough. So, um, as it turns out, one of the really important things about the inaugural lecture is not the lecture at all; it's the party. You know, it's, it's actually the, the fact that we all get to go and have a glass of wine and talk to each other about what we do. And this is actually um, why we do a lot of this in digital humanities. It's absolutely nothing to do with the fact that we enjoy it. It's that we are doing research all the time, you see. We're just research networking. And we don't do this because we enjoy it. We do it because, well, you can see there, nobody looks like they're enjoying it. Um, they are doing serious research. But it does turn out that this is a really good way of coming out with inspiration for research. Now, you can do a bit of digital celebration. And one of the things I really like about DH as a discipline is that um, people do actually celebrate each other's achievements. People do you know, tweet um, and say congratulations when someone gets a big grant or when someone's book comes out or something like that. And I think that's wonderful. And long may it continue, because I think it's something that's great about our field that we don't feel that it diminishes us at all to praise someone else for doing something great, which is at the heart of my field. And as I say, long may it continue. So you can celebrate digitally, and there probably are people out there tweeting away um, in the blogosphere, um, and that's terrific. And it's, so you, you can do it, but it turns out that it's, well, it's slightly more difficult, um, you know, in a kind of <coughs> digital sort of way, and that there may well be people out there, because I know we're webcasting, uh, there may be hello, hello people out there <coughs> celebrating with a glass of wine in one hand and the iPad in the other, but it's just not quite the same, is it? Um, so I think then to move 
swiftly along, having talked about celebrations, I don't want to keep you from it too long. Um, let us have a look then at the affordances. Now, because I'm a geek, um, yes I am, there's been some debate about that on, on Twitter today, and I'm still happy to be a geek. Um, because I'm a geek, I have put little smileys and emoticons and things as a way of um, comparing affordances. I think, therefore, certainly for my research, and I'd argue for many types of research, inaugural lectures are okay as a way of communicating research, but digital is much, much better. Um, I'd say that really they're not, can you see it's a little sad face? Yes. Um, it, they're not a good way, really, of interacting. Well, they're completely not interactive. They're rubbish at being interactive. Whereas digital things are wonderfully interactive and much, much more flexible. So I think they score on that. In terms of the ordeal, as I said, I just, I just got rid of the smiley and, and, and sad faces completely because it's just too, too unpleasant, so I just put little bombs there instead, which does indicate that how terrifying it is. Um, I really don't think that works in the digital. I just don't think it's even possible. Um, I don't think either medium is a terrific way of paying back, really. I think we need to think about ways to do that, and I think mentoring might be a good one. Um, I don't, as I say, I don't think the inaugural lecture is public engagement, but physical ways of public engagement can be great. However, you know, digital public engagement is wonderful and it works and we do it brilliantly here. So I'm just going to say, you know, that's one thing I'm probably most, most proud of uh, about things we do at UCLDH. I think it's, you know, so important. Um, including teams, nope. This is a rubbish way to include my team, though I'm doing my best. Um, but... There are all sorts of digital ways to include teams. You know, when we blog, when we tweet, we make links. We're always talking about what the people we work with do. Um, yeah, celebration, kind of the lecture itself, maybe not terrifically celebratory. Certainly doesn't feel very celebratory for me. Um, and, and, you know, you can do it a bit online, but as I say, it's not quite the same. When it comes to the, the, you know, the major way that the inaugural lecture scores is the party. You know, it is, that is what it's good for. You know, that's the important thing about inaugural lectures. It is to celebrate, it is to do networking, it is to make those connections. So I think what, what we come out with, and you would, you know, I would say this, but I think, it's, I think much of these, much of the, what we say are the functions of inaugural lectures are in fact much better done in a digital way. Um, I think if we, the great thing about the digital world is that it gives us choice. So we don't have to say, people used to say, when they were talking about books and ebooks, and they used to say, oh my god, you know, the book is dead, it's going to be replaced by the ebook, which we all know 15 years later to be absolutely not true, and that, you know, there is room in the, you know, we still write in pencil and read Kindles. There are, you know, there is all sorts of kind of technological spectrum. And I think that's one thing that digital resources give us. They give us the choice. They say, do we do this? Do we do that? Do we do that? Do we do a mixture of several things? So I think, you know, if you are thinking about inaugural lectures in terms of a way to celebrate if someone is a, someone who loves performing, someone who is an ind individual scholar who doesn't really have a research team that works with them, someone you know, whose work basically is one-to-many communication, then, you know, then that maybe works as, an, you know, as a form. But it doesn't work for scholars like me. And I think we also need to be particularly aware of the kind of... the less good affordances, if you like. You know, some of the messages that we're giving, potentially, about the, um, 
the sort of less welcome past of the inaugural, the, the old model of being a professor, the thing you know, that isn't necessarily quite so welcome. Um, you know, if we persist with things like this, we need to know what it is we're saying, what kind of messages we're communicating. Um, so as I said, the digital gives us choice. In the end, we could do various of these things. People could be given a choice. People could either do a lecture, or they could do some blogging stuff, or they could do some public engagement, or they could do all sorts of different things. And they, you know, I think what, what I would argue is that we need to be more flexible. We need to think about um, different things that can be done in different media, in different ways, and that they should fit the type of research of the person that is producing it one way or another. However, as I say, it really does seem that the major thing about the whole inaugural lecture, whatever we think about it, whatever we think about the messages that are conveyed, is about partying. I have kept you from the party far too long, so I'm going to stop now. Thanks. I wanted to make sure I had a slightly longer title than Claire, because my uh, response will be much, much, much shorter. Uh, Claire and I have known each other for, for quite a long time. Susan Hockey introduced Claire and I at a reception at King's College London, not quite the reception pictured in the, uh, the image of, of the party that Claire showed us earlier. But one of the things I, I learned from that very first meeting in that introduction was it was really important to pay attention to Claire. She's one of the people who it is worth hanging on most every word. Not only the words as they're literally articulated and understood, but also what's between them, what's around them, what the context is for those words. And my response is not one that engages necessarily the words as literally heard, although much of that comes in to what I have to say uh, by way of responding to Claire's, but, but thinking around the words, thinking of the context of, of Claire's words, thinking of the intellectual realm which uh, Claire is so aptly, I think, if slightly adjacently addressing in, in what we just have had the, the pleasure of hearing from her. One of the things that, that I hear very much from Claire in her work, but also in, uh, in the talk today, is the singular uh, comments on the singular nature of authority. Um, we all in this room, near as I can tell, those I know as I look around, we are knowledge experts of various kinds, and we know a few things about knowledge and its conveyance uh, and uh, the way in which it's constructed, uh, the way in which uh, we disseminate. Construction of knowledge is systemic in, in various ways and follows different types of processes that we deem to be per uh, pertinent as we gather knowledge. We have similar processes for conveying it and curating it. They operate in similar sorts of fashions. Um, in isolation, certain forms of knowledge conveyance are perfectly appropriate. Uh, this is one of the uh, uh, more popular Canadian examples of, of the one-room schoolhouse in which my grandfather taught ages and ages ago. Uh, a play and then a movie called Why Shoot the Teacher. It turns out there are many good reasons. Uh, but in a one-room school, sole source uh, authority, sole, sole source authoritative conveyance is typical in a one-university lecture hall. Perhaps the same thing, too, in a, a room that is truly limited by the walls that, uh, that, that house it. Perhaps sole source conveyance is appropriate, but, but I certainly noticed there was a lot going on in and around what Claire was saying, not only in how she was conveying it, but in all the tweets and the various other forms of interaction. In fact, uh, as some of you know who, who are on Twitter already and those who are managing the audiovisual already know, uh, there was so much traffic on the live feed that it crashed the server. So, congratulations, Claire. <laughs> you not only use technology, you, you can mess with it in those wonderful ways. Uh, but you know, in the, in the good company and presence uh, in which we're, we're all now, 
I wonder, do we really ask ourselves, as Claire asks us to do, what's the full range of alternative for that sole source authority? Well, we're professionals in, in the area. We've got a good sense of it. But we know the context for this. And Claire and I share a literary studies background, so I'll, I'll allude to, to this through that background as well. Some are theoretical, for example. And if you are a fan of Foucault and Barthes, and many are, and many aren't, you're familiar with social authorial construction uh, as viewed a generation ago or so. Uh, still very much current in some thinking. If you're a pragmatist who works in the area of, of say, poetry, um, manuscript, and early print culture, as Claire and I both have in the past and still do, you might uh, understand uh, this type of context put uh, forward to us by Margaret Azell, which focuses on nature of social authority and the advent of print, specifically thinking about the influence of UK copyright laws in and around a, a period when we were moved almost fully over to print conveyance from manuscript culture, uh, indicative that we've had these sorts of concerns before, not necessarily around the inaugural lecture, but in and around the larger context, which, uh, which uh, Claire so aptly uh, engages and engaged. We also have a more application-oriented uh, context here as well. Uh, this one by, by Stanley Fish, who, who's now taken to trashing digital humanities in the <laughs> New York papers, uh, where, where he asked earlier, at least is there a text in this class? And then focused on issues of authority of interpretive and expressive communities. Very apt style of engagement, very much asking adjacent questions uh, to, to, to what we've had the pleasure of hearing in Claire's address. And you know, there, there's much, much, much more context of an application-oriented kind that I think we could draw our attention to. Is Wikipedia a valid way of expressing oneself in an inaugural lecture format? Probably not. Um, but, but in the real world, we see that the sort of teams working together that Claire is gesturing towards, sometimes in complete anonymity, is large, building, getting larger yet. One has to wonder what's going on. There is a movement afoot, a very serious movement. Um, it's not only about uh, gender concerns. It's not only about first, second, third world concerns. It's not only about cultural concerns. It really is something that taps into uh, much of what we feel and have felt for generations about the nature of knowledge, its curation, its housing, its generation, its dissemination. So much theory and practice lately has encouraged us to think of its disembodiment and its fracture. We're very lucky to have people like Claire and her colleagues to talk to us about how it all comes together again, how we make sense of this. Claire, I know your talk was about many things, um, but you situated the title of the talk in a really, really, I think, poignant, uh, a rhetorically poignant way. And you've drawn our attention to a lot of very important things, well beyond even the important things at the literal level of your talk. Is what you're talking about a big humanities issue, a digital humanities issue, Claire? Uh, is it an evolving humanities issue? Uh, probably all of the above. And I would say it's also an issue for, for iSchools, for knowledge professionals, and in fact, uh, anyone who considers themselves involved somehow in the knowledge industry as a consumer even, as a user in our society. One thing's very clear to me is that we're very, very fortunate to have some of the best minds in the world working uh, on these sorts of issues at the moment in pertinent communities represented by many of us in this room and especially, I would say, here at UCL. I think we're also very, very lucky and certainly I feel personally very touched to be able to celebrate you, Claire, in the context of all your accomplishment and all your work. Thank you for such an engaging lecture and thank you, Professor Warwick.